What do you say, CNFers? It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, greatest podcast in the world, where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Today is Catherine Keith, author of Epic Solitude, a story of survival and a quest for meaning in the far north. Have I got something for you? But first, discover your story, man. It's Bay Path University. You know it. They're making this show possible. Fully online, MFA and creative nonfiction writing. Faculty have true passion and love for their work. Wouldn't have it any other way. It shines through with every comment, edit, and reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer all questions. And their years of experience as writers and teachers have made for an unbeatable experience. Head over to baypath.edu slash MFA for more information. All right. All right. All right, partner. You know what time it is, baby. Ooh. Was that a, a Fred Durst impersonation? You gotta be kidding me. Fred Durst? Ugh. Anyway. I'm sick. Kind of sick as the proverbial dog, which is germane to this conversation, because Catherine Keith is a dog musher, a sled racer. She wrote a pretty epic book. Catherine Keith did. She's the author of Epic Solitude Blackstone Press. This book, let me tell you, man. When you read it, you'll have no idea how someone can endure what Catherine endured. I didn't want to bring up specifics in the interview because I didn't want to spoil it for the reader because you need to discover it as a reader. You need to turn those pages and you need to be like, really? More? How? How? So so we did. We talked around a lot of these things, citing some of the things in the book, a lot of the quotes that tie into the themes of the things she was going through. So we kind of unpacked the emotion of what she went through in a lot of ways, how she processed that without spoiling some of those those big moments in, in the story. She's a certifiable badass, for one. And uh, she was a ton of fun to talk to, that's for sure. And uh, by the time you get this podcast in your feed... I'm going to be somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, no lie. I will be essentially off the grid, so it's on you, CNFers, to keep the torch burning in my digital absence. Hope you will. Be sure to head over to brendanomera.com, hey, hey, for show notes, newsletters, the jam. Connect on social media, at CNFPod, across the big three platforms. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. If you're feeling kind, I'd happily take a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And this connection we have, it deepens if you share it with your various networks. I hope I've made something worth sharing, this podcast and the one next week. However, they won't be edited. We're on like an unediting streak. I'm not proud of it. It's just what's happening right now. I know. It's not that I'm lazy. I hope you know that. You know I'm not lazy. All right, I can be a little lazy, but not really that lazy. Okay, maybe a little lazy. It's that I just don't have a spare minute. And any spare minute I have is spent either reading or sleeping or or working. And uh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. My hope is to get back into the editing ring once again in about two weeks so relish in the rawness, CNFers, because here's me and Catherine Keith. So you grew up in, in, in Minnesota. So, uh, you, know, you know, take us there. What was, you know, your, your childhood like in getting a sort of maybe a little taste of maybe the, the outdoor fever that you would carry to Alaska eventually? Well, since I was a young um, child, I always knew that I needed to be I love to be alone and in the wilderness. Uh, I didn't really understand why that was until I was older, but it was just really important to me. I was eight years old and 
running off in search of beaver dams and climbing trees. And I didn't always need to be around a lot of people. Uh, and uh, I read a lot of books avidly. And I had a couple explorers that came to my school. That was Will Steger and Ann Bancroft. And they had gone to the North Pole via dog team and went on to do very many amazing things. And from then on, that was what I was going to do. I was going to run dog teams and go on Arctic expeditions. And I began to dream. And it really led me on to the path that kind of took me to where I am today. Yeah, and early in the book, uh, I, some of my favorite parts of the book were uh, a lot of the quotations that start each each chapter, and I think those are a lot of those are like great entree into you know what resonates with you as a person, and is, is very in, in and of itself revealing. And uh, early on, you you quote uh, an Edward Abbey quote that was, uh, "Wilderness is not a luxury, but a necessity of the human spirit." And uh, yeah. yeah, so at what point does you know did you kind of uh, does something of that nature really sink into you? Probably when I was 14, I realized um, it really had to be that way for me. It was um, as necessary as breathing because uh, it wasn't always easy for me growing up. Um, and the way to, uh, to cope with a lot of that was to get outside. And when I got outside within, you know, an hour of being alone, uh, there is this spiritual exchange that happens when you're in wilderness that would allow me to like calm and be able to sort of heal from, from these experiences. And that's where, you know, that Edward Abbey quote really became important to me. He's my favorite author to this day. Um, so, uh, no offense to any of those other awesome authors that I absolutely <laughs> love, <laughs> but uh, that really has special meaning for me. And it's, yeah. So, so you cite Abby, um, and as you, as you're growing up too, who were some other people that you're, you're reading and connecting with, uh, via the, you know, the red word. And of course you'd, you know, of course take up the pen yourself. Uh, so who are some of those authors that really sunk their teeth into you? Uh, authors that really appealed to me, uh, I, now I understand them to be like the transcendentalist authors. I had fiction writers that uh, I really devoured, but the ones that had the greatest impact on me uh, growing up were like the Thoreau, um, Emerson, um, those um, essay writers, along with um, like Edward Abbey had the most influence on my writing today, those nature writers, uh, because they could so eloquently capture what I felt when I was outside, uh, when I was out hiking or out rock climbing, like this way that I felt, uh, the way that I could really be my, not only myself, but the, the way that I felt that out here, you know, I am in uh, like this, I am out here like, what I would say as, you know, people could describe it as this is I'm with God out here and the beauty that you see, you know, they could so describe it. That's how I wanted to be able to write. And I could not write like they can. <laughs> One day I could constantly, I could write till I'm a hundred and I would never write like they can, but I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> and were you not like in looking and reading the book and then you, know, you seeing pictures of you and your sort of athletic exploits being, you know, triathlon, uh, dog, dog sled racing. Um, were you always an, uh, an athletic, an athletic person and, uh, what kind of athletic things did you pursue, uh, at, when you were, you know, growing up? I was, uh, into sports, uh, since I was, uh, yeah, young age teenager, I was in team sports, varsity athlete. Um, I pursued um, some team sports, but then also the individual sports like cross country skiing uh, was my were my favorites. Um, mountain biking, uh, rock climbing, and then that's what I kept on with. And later on in life, I pursued the triathlons, and um, and then that kind of led me into the the dog mushing from there. But 
yeah, I loved, love sports. Uh, love the athletic pursuits of challenging yourself uh, physically. I think it's really important. Yeah, and as I say, cross country skiing, uh, what were some of the team sports you did? A soccer. Mm-hmm. I was love soccer, and um, uh, I played uh, varsity, and then I was in track and field. Or, I mean, <laughs> volleyball. Volleyball, all right, nice. Soccer, volleyball, and uh, track and field, yeah. Nice, and mm-hmm. and a lot of people uh, who who you know say they love you know being outside of course, you know, of, kind of will eventually want to settle back into their creature comforts. They'll have like a little sample of it, and then then come back to what we're used to. And but you've taken it to a whole nother level where you were really, you know, you really leaned into it. Um, where do you think that comes from? That you found that that comfort and that capacity to endure discomfort on a level that a lot of us probably can't. For me, I hunger for that uh, grit. I think Mm. it's really critical for us to develop that grit within in order to uh, be prepared for the challenges that we face in life. And that's something that I recognized earlier on. And I applied that to being outdoors. So not only did I love and crave being outdoors, but I loved being, I would go hike for a couple of days, but then uh, to be out there for a week and to be able to hike, not just for five miles a day, but I would go out and be able to hike 15 miles a day. Or when I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, I would go and I would Uh, you know, pack lightly and then be able to hike 20 miles a day and be able to be out there. Um, uh, It was just an amazing experience. So I I think having that grit to test yourself, to know you can do it, uh, gives you that uh, strength. It gives you the resilience, all of these things that really carry on into your daily life, uh, which gives us the courage, the heart, and the willpower never to give up when we need it, um, when things kind of fall apart on us, uh, which, you know, they always do because we're human. <laughs> yeah. Things fall apart. It's life. Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that grit, like, can you point to some, uh, to a moment or to maybe even a, a person who illustrated that to you and you're like, you know, I'm going to, that's something I want to, you know, apply to my own life and, and just that kind of rigor that really translates across all discipline. Somebody that demonstrated this to me as a young age. Yeah. Even a young age. And even, yeah, just as a a shining example of what, you know, just relentless grit can be and that you can lean into something, accomplish, accomplish goals, get through hardship. If you just kind of have that kind of focus that, you know, of course is very well illustrated in your book. Perhaps I've seen this through Olympic athletes. I could see that as being a very good example of the perseverance and determination that it takes. And similarly, if I look back at those um, early uh, explorers that I was talking about, Will Steger and Ann uh, Bancroft, uh, it was very easy to see through their slides um, that they were presenting just how difficult and awful and painful that was to be up there in that extreme cold day after day after day, uh, never knowing what you're going to encounter next, the darkness and taking care of your dogs and having lived through that and going through that now myself, I know what that was like and I love it. Uh, so I've, I know what, what it's like now, but Uh, Looking at that from a young age, it was kind of clear what it took um, to be prepared to be able to handle that. So I believe uh, now, sort of in retrospect, I understood what I was going to have to build within myself to get ready to be at that level. You know, to build yourself to be at that level requires grit. It requires the ability to be okay being in solitude and also um, you know, loving to be in that wilderness setting. So it kind of requires all of these things. 
And and speaking of solitude, it, these days, you know, given how almost hyper connected uh, we all are via email or social media, uh, solitude seems to be uh, in, in rare quantities these days. Uh, you know, how have you been able to cultivate that solitude that's so important and very just you know part of your DNA in a world that is that wants to be just um, almost toxically connected at times. How have you managed that balance? Yeah, you're so right about that. It's the, today's very noisy. <laughs> right. And it's hard for us to be comfortable spending time alone, uh, let alone going in nature, you know, 10 miles into the woods when there's like bears or rabid foxes or who knows what's out there. Um, what I found, though, is the very tool that we need to confront, like the skeletons in our closet, the emotions that we repress, you know, the anger that we have towards ourselves or others from 10 years ago. The only way we can really feel them is by being our, by alone, you know, alone by ourselves, you know, somewhere that solitude, especially when we can be kind of scared sometimes or uh, in, in that dark place by ourself. Uh, that's, that's what I found. So purposefully putting ourselves in solitude, um, is important. So the way that I've learned to do that is by forcing myself to do that. So it hasn't always been easy. Um, for example, uh, where I live above the Arctic circle on, on dog team, I have to travel at night very frequently and there's moose out there on the trail. So when you're traveling with a dog team, you've got a little headlamp on, but it's never bright enough. And you're going through all these willows and you never know if there's going to be a moose around the corner. Hmm. So I get very scared. I'm looking around I'm like, okay, is there a moose? Is there not a moose? Oh, I'm not sure what's going to be there. Um, so yeah, you, there's a lot of fear. And sometimes I'm like, I don't think I want to go out tonight because I have this fear. It was awful. Um, but you got to force yourself kind of through that and, you know, just learn to swallow it down because the chances, you know, there, there could be one there, but I know how, I do know how to manage that situation. Um, but when I do get through that and swallow it down, you know, you kind of, you develop that grit and capacity and then emotionally, you know, I, I can, I can work through that. Um, and if, when I do have that fear, other things do bubble up to the surface. I have doubts. Um, things come up from five years ago that I'm kind of managing. You know, mm -hmm. it's really surprising what comes up. Um, and the same is true, not that you have to be in a dog team above the Arctic Circle. But if you have um, a trail and you're worried about getting out there or just even sitting on a park bench by yourself somewhere, you got to just walk yourself through that and, and make yourself sit there without your cell phone or shut your phone off and force yourself to do it. And it won't be comfortable. Hmm. Um, and you have to just keep doing it. Yeah. In those moments, if you the solitude is great to get that remove and to get some actual physical detachment from from other just from other inputs. When you're in those moments, of course, you know, you are accompanied by just you in general, uh, various, you know, various, you know, demons, things that haunt you. How have you learned to process that and to kind of dance with it and not let it, say, like, pull you down underwater um, and just kind of, you know, process that kind of thing? How have you managed that through through your life? Well, to be frank, at times it does and has pulled me underwater. The key is to keep letting it pull you underwater because eventually you learn how to swim. Mm. Um, so over time, um, it, it just stops. You, you learn how to swim. So you stop drowning. So in those situations, when I, when I, when I do go out alone like that now, you know, I, it just doesn't, the stuff that used to drown me, like it just doesn't have power over me anymore. So, um, so, so for anyone that, you know, has things like that, that they need to work through, you get out there, you face it, you know, it's going to be messy. Yeah. You might have a whole bunch of stuff coming out that's hard to manage. 
And uh, oh, that's going to be really, it's going to be, it's going to be rough. But then you get out there the next day and it's like, ah, oh, you're going to be rough. But, you know, eventually um, it does, it does calm down. So you have to be careful, you know, it's like with, um, you know, you just got to, you, you have to know yourself and you have to manage it. Um, and, and depending on the things that you're dealing with, you know, I, you just have to, um, um, you have to just manage things cautiously. Right. But so for my, myself, however, that it does and has, uh, it has mellowed out over, over time so that now I can, um, uh, say with certainty, you know, that all of this stuff I can, uh, now it doesn't have the power over me that it did uh, years before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to talk like kind of elliptically around a lot of the things I, I don't want to spoil the book for people who, who haven't a chance to read it. And, and a lot of the, the, the key sort of tentpole events that you write about and, and process and deal with throughout the story of the book. So like in a way I'll talk around that stuff so I don't ruin it for people. Um, but I, but I know exactly from reading the book, I know exactly a lot of uh, the you know the stuff you write wrote about and the traumas you you underwent and the tragedy you underwent and which kind of echoes this Khalil Gibran quote that you that you cite too that the deeper that sorrow carves into your being the more joy you can contain. How did you arrive at that to know that the deep pain deep sorrow that you've experienced can have ac- actually uh, lead to joy? Yeah, so to bring kind of an analogy into that situation, um, uh, to tell a dog mushing story, this happens quite frequently. I'll, I'll be out on the trail, and it'll be a horrible, horrible run. Um, I was running uh, one night from uh, a local uh, village uh, ambler on the Kobuk 440 race, and... Um, it was very cold, like 30 below and the winds were like 25 miles an hour and I had gotten beat up. <laughs> it was just mm-hmm. an awful, awful run. Um, and we're, it was just having a, a, a rough night and, um, was very, very tired at that point in the race. I hadn't slept yet after probably two and a half days. So the, the point being, it was, it was difficult. And so we sat down to camp for the night and, uh, you got to wonder like, why am I out here doing this? This is a little ridiculous mm-hmm. <laughs> and things kind of come, kind of come compress. And then you look up and all of a sudden, like the Northern lights are out and they're really stunning when you're that far North, they're like reds, dancing reds, greens, a little bit of like orange, and the moon is out and there's stars. And I, I got to tell you, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth when you see the Northern lights like that on a clear night and it's crystal clear when it's that cold mm. and it's, it's freezing 30 below. I'm not making that up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold. And, uh, it's the atmosphere is on, um, it's crystal. So you had, when you're, when things get that awful, you're just, you hit rock bottom and then all of a sudden you see this miraculous display. So that quote, um, it's, it's one way to say, you know, that was a physical situation. You hit rock bottom and then, whoa, look at that. It's amazing. And then it completely turns everything around. And that's found that to be very true with life that if you, um, allow yourself to really feel loss, feel tragedy without numbing yourself out, without, you know, um, letting addiction uh, numb you um, or without hiding from that, uh, you will uh, once again find yourself feeling joy, you know, through, you know, at some capacity through a child or through some other form in your life. So it's, it is important to allow yourself to feel the lows and the highs. Um, and so that's, you know, some of uh, what I, I write in, in the book mm. and writing that in the book from a, you know, creative nonfiction writers 
standpoint was was difficult. I have to admit. Right. Yeah, that was definitely something I wanted to bring up. And just it's one thing to, you know, of course you you know you live you've lived your life and lived through various experiences that are deeply scarring uh, emotionally. And, and at times physically as well. And then it's another thing 15 or 20 years later to kind of dive back in and relive it and shape it and write it. And you're also – you have to kind of live in it again for a long time, deeply immersive as you're generating pages. And why – you know, why – what was your – you know, what was the motivation for you to want to come back to a lot of – to to a lot of your past and to relive it and rehash it and shape it in this book, you know why why did you put yourself through that? Why what was the need to tell this story? The most important reason was to pass a message on. Um, it wasn't because I wanted to write an autobiography. Uh, it was more uh, because I wanted to tell people that it's important to fully engage with life uh, rather than just allowing ourselves to exist. Uh, there was a message that I received in my life that you're supposed to say yes to life when you are in doubt, when things are really stacked up against you, when life is beating you down, when you don't know if you can keep going, you have to really say yes. And that means Yes, every day you're going to go out and you're going to do something that's affirmative. You're going to you're going to really take a step forward, go do something that's you've been um, put, you know, putting off. And so that was why I wrote the book was to not allow ourselves to walk around numb for years um, when we are hit with shock, but to um, find grit in your life. Um, to uh, find a way to fight back to the surface and live again. And I did that through, you know, the triathlons, through the wilderness, through the dog races. But, you know, for you, it could be, it could be anything, you know, you, everyone will have their own path. And through the book, I just wanted to encourage people to find your own path, but that it's important to find your path, but just make sure you find one and say yes to it, you know? Yeah, and that that was a passage I, I pulled out, and it was kind of late in the book, too, where you wrote that. And you wrote that, I work to be a light in the darkness for people who are struggling to take the first step in saying yes to life every single day because of all that weighs us down. That's exactly what you're echoing. Ah, cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of, you know, you... You know, you the part of part of your path was really doubling down on these like very extreme physical contests, whether that's the dog mushing or Ironman triathlon. Um, did you find that leaning into something physical like that was was a you know, a, for lack of a better term, like a good addiction to lean into? Because other people might lean into you know a different kind of substance abuse, but at least you put it into your body, so to speak. Um. Although I don't feel like addiction to work or addiction to physical exertion is healthy either, for me, the challenge of the physical activity was a supplement to being in the wilderness. At the time of the triathlons, I was raising a young child, Amelia. And I wasn't able to get out and launch myself into big wilderness quests because uh, it wasn't feasible. I was going to college, I was working full time, and I was raising her. So the triathlons worked really well because I could train indoors. I had a you know, compu trainer on my bike. I had a treadmill right there. So it allowed me to get that grit generated and allow me to work towards this goal that was important to me. I needed something to work towards. Like I'm going to do a triathlon and I'm going to launch myself into this. And every day I can do something towards that goal and I'm not going to quit. That was 
something that I was going to do because I, I had to keep moving forward. Um, otherwise, you know, it was, it was a really difficult time in my life because of the loss that we were um, dealing with. Yeah. So those things were really important to me. And, you know, it didn't, the important things for me are the solitude, the wilderness and the, the grit. Those are the things that I've found I've needed. And so, you know, I don't compete in triathlons anymore. I, I did a lot of, for a lot of years I did, and I still love them, but now that I can, it's easier for there to be like wilderness in my life again. I've kind of, you know, moved away. Uh, but I, I loved them. Yeah, the fact that you could put in the kind of mileage on either treadmill or like a stationary like compu trainer, like to me, it's like I, I've done some of that training too, and it's mind-numbingly boring at times. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just the the mental fortitude just to be able to get into that metal meditative state, and I'm not saying I could do it because I was just crushed by boredom to the point where I didn't want to do it anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, how, how did yeah. you how did you find the reserves to just to I mean, I, to to pull that off, it's a, it's an amazing feat of mental strength to be able to do that. Well, Amelia and I would watch movies on it, and then I would I'd be studying as a student. So I would have my books out, I would be reading, oh and I have my computer. I would be working on the computer, so you can be very efficient. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Lots of multitasking. Yeah. <laughs> and, and something I want to um, yeah, pick your brain on. Also was um, the routine, the how someone even gets into um, you know endurance dog racing mushing, and then the training and the routines and the chores around around that. It's uh, maybe you can take us through you know how you got how you how you first got into that, how you adopted that, and then maybe your a typical routine for you as you care for them, train for them you know, feed and bed them, all everything that goes into it. And uh, it's kind of an expansive question, but uh, I'd love for you to just run with it. Sure. Well, um, as a person gets into dog mushing, um, this in general, speaking generally, you go up to be a dog handler. And that basically means you're an indentured servant. You go to find an existing dog musher that races. You offer your... Uh, services typically a year um, and you don't get paid you go up there for room and board and in exchange you get experience you learn how to run the dogs harness the dogs feed the dogs everything related to the dogs and you might get to run them maybe not so that's what I did I went up to Kotzebue Alaska and I learned how to do all of that it was awesome I loved it so happy uh, that's how I fell in love with the Arctic Circle. And I never left. So it was an amazing experience. Changed my life. So from then on, um, I, I'd be just, that was, that was my life. Regarding uh, what it takes to feed and, and manage a dog lot of, you know, 80 dogs, hmm. it is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. um, basically, um, you, you feed them twice a day. And uh, you, it is a if you can picture a five gallon bucket that you get at Home Depot. Mm -hmm. It's about oh, seven to eight buckets of food twice a day. And you cook the food in a massive metal uh, steel drum, you know, 50-gallon drum. And into that 50-gallon drum goes a bunch of chopped frozen fish. And you get the frozen fish underneath the ice of the ocean. But first, you have to get the fish. So in the ocean, you put a net underneath the ocean that you catch the fish in. So you got to, you know go catch the fish by pulling the net out of the ocean. And then you get the fish, you chop up the fish, you put them in the drum and then you get the wood and you have to chop up the wood and then start the fire. And then you cook the fish and then you put the fish in the buckets and then you get the water, which is also from under the ocean or not the ocean, but uh, you get the water from the pond because it's not salt water. And you put that in there 
cook it, and then you feed it to all the dogs. So that's the feeding part and that goes on twice a day. Then you have to scoop the yard because mm-hmm. that gets messy with 80 dogs. Yeah. And then that alone is about three, 15 gallons of dog crap oh <laughs> twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> but then the fun part is running. So the training and the running, you'll hook up about um, 12 to 16 dogs and you'll take them from run on runs between um, 10 to 80 miles, um, uh, you know, depending on the run uh, every day to, you know, three times a week. Uh, and then that's the whole point. That's the fun part. And you harness them, hook them up, put booties on their feet and on every single foot, you put a sock on them. That's a dollar a booty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can imagine that. And and you take off. And the dogs go crazy. They just jump up and down. They go ballistic. They are nuts for running. They they love it. But the best part is, is you got 80 of your best friends out there. And you know them all by name. And you know them all by personality. And they all love you. And they, they just, it's just wonderful. So all of the work is amazing because uh, it's, it's just a great, great lifestyle. Well, it's got to be very nourishing to see that sort of dog energy coming in because even as it, it must be just kind of, it can be a grind to go through all those chores, but to see that energy in there and their just sheer zeal for, to just want to run must be, you know, it just energizing beyond, you know, anything you can experience really up there. Yeah. 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 It is. Yeah. And and there's a moment too in the, in the book where I think you're, you are experiencing some hardship on, uh, I think it's your first Iditarod and, uh, it, it might've been a different dog race, but I think it was Iditarod and, um, you were on the phone with your mother and, you know, you were just like really down and I, you know, and she said, why don't you just enjoy being outside? You dream of being outside in solitude with the dogs. I know you like to compete, but the pressure makes it so big. You can't have fun. Just let go and savor the adventure. Uh, what was that like to, to hear that? Did that snap you, you know, like kind of snap you into, into shape at that moment? <laughs> it did uh, snap me. At least for, you know, five minutes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But my mom, she was totally right. (laughs) Uh, I have to admit, I am a competitive person. um, But she was completely correct. The only reason I'm out there doing this is uh, to be out there with the dogs. And I have no idea then why it bugs me that, you know, I'm, two minutes slower than the time that I wanted to be at this particular spot mm-hmm. from my schedule that I created a month ago, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. I am kind of a type A person. So I work hard to let that go, but it is what it is. Right. <laughs> so my mom knows that about me at least. <laughs> and there's another moment too, where, um, and, and this echoes some, uh, there's a great, um, you know, baseball hitting coach that uh, that's been on the podcast too, because he's written some stuff about hitting, and he's always saying like, you got to sort of know thyself and figure out your why. And um, and you wrote that too. That at one point, this is my why, what I search for. And I box, I you know, I circled that because it's uh, having knowing the answer to that question can really make you you know persevere and and develop you know a better grit muscle as you as you were talking about in in these endurance pursuits and uh and certainly a lifestyle you adopt uh, you know above the arctic circle you know what is your your why and what what you're searching for you know even you know even today and certainly you know years ago but definitely today yeah that's pretty easy to explain uh harder to put into words but when I, I'll, I'll just say this, when I wrote the book, the one of the first things you have to do is decide what arc you're going to follow, because there's so many when you come across your lifetime. And one of the most important ones to me is 
um, I'm a highly spiritual person. I like my spiritual path is a strong one, but I couldn't really put that in the book because uh, that wasn't really the message that I was trying to portray. But when I'm out there and I spoke to this already, the spiritual exchange that happens in the wilderness, that's really what I'm out there searching for. That's my main experience when I'm in nature. It's, it's where I'm at home. It's where my heart is. Like That's where I need to be. That's my why. That's a lot of the feeling that I that I have and my passion. And that's what I want to carry out for other people. I want to bring that back out to other people because I feel if other people could experience that and have a little bit of that, I think there'd be more wellness in the world and uh, uh, allow people to feel more whole. So for me, that's that's my why. And over the course of, of writing the book, what were some of your, you know, growing pains in, in writing, writing this and developing that, you know, the arc you wanted to tell and the, and the, and the way you wanted to tell it, you know, what was that process like for you? When I laid the book out, I, I was following a path to come up with 10 scenes I'm not a writer by background. I have no formal background as a writer, which you could probably tell when you read the book. <laughs> so uh, I read all I could. I researched everything uh, about it. Uh, so I, I did my my be- I did it my best, but. Uh, no, so and you did. I, you did great. It's a it's a wonderful <laughs> book, and there and there are people who are who are you know who go through MFA programs and have like technical savvy, but sometimes they lack a certain electric charge beneath it. Cause they just kind of sound like an at like a kind of a flat MFA voice. I'll take someone who's more of a raw, some somewhat writing from a place of rawness uh, versus someone who might be more, I don't know, technically sound. So I, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was a, a, a great piece of work you did just to put your, put your mind at ease. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> so, okay. The challenge then for me was um, I wanted 10 scenes that I could write and come up with what those were. And I read um, Jim Smith's writer's little helper. Cause I mean, it's a fiction uh uh, you know, a guide, but yet this is, I still want to tell a good story um, to get the message across, even though it's nonfiction, but within that, uh, so what are my 10 scenes that I want to tell that can still get the message across? Then, okay, once I have these 10 scenes, what, what are the, what are these arcs? What is the arc that I want to tell? And for me, it, what needed to be you know, the trauma, loss, and healing journey from that. But it also needed to be the adventure racing and wilderness and sort of the oscillating nature of those two because I think that both of them were important, not only because they were both important, are important aspects of my life, but I th- we can't just have one whole book about trauma, loss, and healing. You also need the adventure racing in that because that helps carry you know the excitement through the the book it, it help it moves it forward and and that's the um that's the, ex, the excitement um of the story um so both of them are important so through those 10 scenes in there you know i was i would i had this massive two big massive bulletin boards and I had all these post-its everywhere trying to track, okay, what are the scenes that I was telling here and what are the arcs? And I mean, I had these everywhere trying to track down all like your life, you know, sorting out what was going to have to stay, what was going to have to go. Um, and then what order, because um, as, as you know, the book doesn't go in sequential order. Um, it doesn't go from start to finish. And that was a very big decision with numerous people, um, chiming in on it. Um, so in a sense, it's more of a thematic memoir than it is a standard one because of it. 
So the, um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and primarily it was because I wanted it to be more of an emotional experience, not necessarily that of this, you know, chronological um, history. And so it was meant to have the, um, uh, the a sentiment that was happening in the raw life experience match up with the experience that was happening in the race. They, they go in tandem uh, so that they build up and they, you know, uh, simmer down at the same time. So the experience kind of ebbs and flows uh, with more uh, impact. And some people like it, some people really dislike it. And, you know, it's really going to um, be depending on people's style. So as for myself writing it, those were some of the biggest challenges was first putting those 10 scenes together that would accomplish my goal, which was the message of engaging, you know, what my message was, you know, how do, how do I encourage people to engage with life, you know, and stay within those arcs and then without, and somehow put the not overly confuse um, that oscillating nature of the, the two, um, you know, the, the two storylines like that. Mm. Yeah, that was something I, I know the, that sort of fractured aspect of it was um, kind of kaleidoscopic in a way because it's, you know, you get these these little um, slideshows things that take you, you know, in from one piece of time, put you in a different timeline. And then but yeah, then but the overall if you take the helicopter view of it, it it, it does have more of the, the an emotional sort of. Uh, like you were saying, an emotional arc that seems, you know, consistent, even if we're not chronologically uh, consistent. So that was a, was that a strategy that you struck with your editor or was that just something you felt in your bones as you were telling this? Um, it was, I had, um, yeah, it was something that I um, started with. I had a couple different proposals, a couple versions of a proposal put together. And that was the one that was selected. So I could have gone either way with it, but this was the one that was more important. And if you consider it, now that you've looked at the story, it wouldn't have made much sense just to go all out really heavy handed with the whole first 30 years of life. And then at the back end, just have a whole bunch of races. Right, right. And that, like, it would have been awful. And that's why I, I really didn't want to go that route because, uh, it. I mean, it just wouldn't have made any sense to me. I wouldn't have wanted to read that myself. I would have put it down. And then just to have all of a sudden a bunch of dog races, that, I mean, I, I, didn't like that approach at all. Yeah, that that could get. Uh, it's kind of like if J.K. Rowling just had a, like a bunch of Quidditch all the time. It's just, <laughs> it's right. It's kind of like you need to yes. de you need to deploy it strategically. Otherwise, it loses its meaning and it doesn't seem novel anymore. So it's like you know you're able to kind of dollop. You know, Roy Peter Clark calls a lot of these things like gold coins for the reader. And it's like, you know, you place these things strategically throughout the thing and it pulls people through. But yeah, if you front load things, I mean, you could really slam the reader with a sledgehammer through like that, the chronologically speaking through the first 30 years of your life. And then at the end, they would just be like, Oh, this is, uh, this is cool and all, but it, it doesn't, it, it, it the balance on the seesaw of the narrative wouldn't work. And like your instincts were perfect in that, in that, if I have to say, yeah. And then, you know, maybe just one last thing on that. Most people were expecting just a story about dog racing. They really just wanted only to know about Catherine Keith, the dog musher. So they would have been expecting what was my life like from 30 on through my dog races? What was that like? 
you know, tell me about all the dog racing. Like that's kind of what they want to know. So then, <laughs> so I tried to write it just like that and without writing any stories about what happened, you know, maybe a little bit about what happened in uh, my life out at, um, in a rural Alaska at camp, you know, but then you, you learn really quickly about yourself in writing a memoir. Pretty, It's really hard to write about one event without writing about what happened before because you become a liar without telling the back a little bit of backstory mm. because it becomes really empty. And then you back it up a little bit more and you then you want to write about yourself at 24 or something that happened, but it doesn't make any sense what happened at 24 if you don't talk about something really important that happened at 20. Okay, well then, why did you arrive at what happened at 20? It doesn't make any sense. How did you get there at 20? That's really awful. What did? Why did you make that dumb decision? Well, then you have to talk about what happened at 19. So that's I found that happening throughout this whole thing. And that's ultimately why it ended up including, you know, I, I started the book when I'm about 10, <laughs> yeah. which was not the plan. I wasn't <laughs> going to go that far back. I was going to start it when I was about um, on the drive up to Alaska, which was when I was 21. So it, it was it's interesting, uh, the whole memoir process. I'll just say that. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that's part of how you flesh it out through the early goings you just kind of start and then you realize like oh this really isn't the start this is closer to the middle and you finish the whole draft and you're like you think you're kind of done then you're like no nah, i'm actually just getting started and it's just uh oh man it, it, it's just a, it's a morass to get through <laughs> how, how long did this take you to write uh it took once after the proposal was done it took about uh a, nine months mm-hmm the proposal itself took about six months because it required putting a ton of pieces together um, for the proposal. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And over the the course of like, of course, you know, writing this book and then you know your life the last you know twenty years or so. Um, I was just curious how you've learned to you know carry you know your your traumas and your tragedies with you and and to kind of. Uh, they're always with you. And of course that it's, you know, raw and very present in, in the book. So how have you learned to, you know, carry it with you in, in over the course of your life and just into, into process that. I've been an avid journaler since I was young. That's been my form as a writer. I would fill up these 25 cent notebooks, um, those dollar notebooks from Walmart. Uh, up until I was in my mid-20s, I would write constantly. Then I stopped very suddenly, and I couldn't write anymore because I think I was afraid of writing at that point. Things just then became a little overly much. Uh, then I sort of, um, I think uh, things became a little too overwhelming, and I didn't want to write anymore. Uh, for me... Continuing to, I, I just keep going back to the wilderness. I know I'm sort of like a, a repeat salesman here, but <laughs> uh, it's really been my avenue is just just to get out. Um, it, it's been a requirement, but dogs uh, finding ways to uh, accept unconditional love of our friendly companions is, is a great way to um, to help with that. In one of your journal entries, you wrote that only a person who risks is free. And I think you wrote that maybe in 94 or something. So we're talking like you're probably a teenager at that point, maybe 16 roughly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not, can you, like, to me, that's just such a, it's such a wonderful line and you know you're you know so so young at that point does that still ring true for you you know now that you're you know in your early 40s yes it does yeah and i think it still means the same thing at both ages when i was 16 
what that meant to me was sort of escaping the shackles and um, confines that society really places on us. I was 16 and, you know, there's a lot of pressures on you then. I wanted to go, I, I had a lot of things I wanted to go do. I was out rock climbing. Even at 16, I got myself, um, I had a car. I went road tripping around the country. I had a, um, I put a sleeping bag and a tent in the back of my car and I was gone all summer uh, going around the Southwest um, backpacking. So that's a risk. Like I took a lot of risks. I would go meet random people and go up to them and say, hey, do you want to climb? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would hitchhike um, when I didn't have a car. But I felt like that was my way of um, getting to express, like meeting new people and getting to find my way in the world um, So I, of, of finding freedom and getting to experience the world without um, having the pressures put on you or being locked into a certain path. Um, and in a way, in, an, in, a, in a deep, deeply spiritual way, that was being free to be open and expressing, um, uh, being open in your heart as well. And today, that's, that's the same thing. You have to risk in order to, to be free. You have to put yourself out there. Otherwise, you get closed in. You have to be vulnerable. And, and today, like, you know, this book's going to be published in a couple of days, uh, depending on when the, uh, and right now, today is the second. So the book is going to be released on the fourth. So that's a big risk. <laughs> I'm very vulnerable to put this. I was like, am I, this is a very, very, uh, very truthful book here. Um, but this is freeing for me. So. Um, this is gonna, this is big opening my heart in a lot of ways. So yeah, it's a very true statement. Mm. Be, be okay with risk. And in kind of echoing back to what you had said, um, you know, earlier, a, a big reason why you were inspired to write this book was, um, to encourage people to, you know, to say yes to life every single day. And, uh, so at, at this, at this juncture, at this point, in your life, you know, what are the things that you, that you are saying yes to in your life going forward? Well, that's a great question. I'm saying yes to future books is one thing. I have further projects I want to write. I'm saying yes to doing uh, future workshops because I am very serious about giving back and I've not always been great with committing to being around people. Uh, and I think that's something that I, it's time to do. And I'm saying yes to climbing the seven summits, which is my next, my next big uh, adventure attempt, which starts this July. Damn. <laughs> so I continue on in my, my efforts. I'm taking a pause in dog mushing for a couple years to do that. So and I'm saying yes to getting my beautiful daughter Amelia into college. So that's all these great things are happening. Well, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Well, uh, Catherine, we're kind of uh, up against our time. And I just want to, you know, thank you for the book and thank you for coming on uh, the podcast. Uh, you know, where can people uh, get familiar with uh, you and the amazing things you've done if the, so they can maybe find a little more information on you and, and of course, buy the book? My website's at katherinekeith.com, and you can go there for information and my contact information. I'd love to hear from you or what you think about the book, good or bad. And Amazon uh, has the book, IndieBound, of course, is a great place to support your local uh, independent bookstores. Uh, and um, that's about it. We did it. We made it CNFers. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure you're subscribing to the show, of course. This crazy show is produced by me, Brendan O'Mara. Hey, hey. I make the show for you. I hope it made something worth sharing. And if you really dig the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes are at brendanomara.com. Follow the show on the various social media channels at CNFPod across them all. Get that newsletter at my website, 
win books, win zines, hang out with your buddy B.O. Once a month, no spam, can't beat it. Are we done here? We must. Because if you can do, interview, see ya!